to be here tonight. Um, as Kathy was saying, the last time I was here teaching, I was here as a nun in robes. So in the last few months, there's been quite a, a big change in terms of outer form. And in terms of uh, the, the point of the teachings here tonight, uh, this weekend, uh, wanting to speak about classical teachings, uh, return to the basic fundamentals of, of sila samadhi and panya, of integrity, of samadhi, of, of focus and of wisdom. Um, in commemoration with 20 years of New York Insight being around and the long-standing efforts of community and what you have done in providing a context for Dhamma. But I just come out of the Santa Rosa fires, like just... You know, just yesterday, my mom was able to move back into her home. We had to evacuate. She was on the first round of emergency evacuations at 3.30 in the morning, um, Monday, a week ago, from whenever Monday was. And so, um, you know, she's 87 years old and has a dog, and so, you know, not an insignificant thing for a whole community of elders to leave. So I've been right in the middle of all of that, of uh, navigating it. So the background of what I want to speak about, having gone through significant life change myself and having just come out of um, something where I, uh, just uh, kind of a, a crisis of dimensions that's a little bit hard for any of us to put our minds around to fathom is to speak about the Dhamma, the classical teachings, in a way that is relevant in our contemporary world, meeting these kinds of life changes and this kind of life event. So I'm going to do everything I know to ground the classical teachings in what does it mean in our everyday life and how we show up for massive changes and things that are difficult to wrap our minds around. Because for me, right now, with what I'm sitting with, it doesn't make sense to do it otherwise. You know, it doesn't make sense to keep it abstract. It makes sense for it to be real and vital and something that we can feel and connect with in our body and have a sense of how to bring this forward in the midst of the reality of our lives. And I know I am not the only one who's navigating big changes right now. And I know that Santa Rosa in California is not the only place that has been navigating um, catastrophic uh, environmental events. And so for me, it feels uh, really, you know, 
where the tire meets the road, you know, to bring these teachings into a way where we can feel alive with them and clear about what this means for us in our world today and how to bring this forward. So that's my intention. And so I was relating to Friday night as really the beginning of this weekend non-residential retreat. So I, I came to that conclusion on my mind with my own without speaking to anyone. But to me, tonight was really the, the beginning, the introduction of this whole weekend of setting the stage for how is it that we can speak about integrity and focus and wisdom in a way that allows us to begin to start moving from abstract into real, into applied experience of livingness in our worlds today. So the Buddha gives us a framework of precepts as a way of helping us to uh, stay restrained from engaging in activity that's not helpful. And it's is hugely uh, useful to have a sense of what not to do or a sense of question marks around where it starts moving into gray. And then like red flags around things that we need to be really careful about when we're making decisions that are clearly transgressions of the precepts. And the precepts are not offered as a commandment, and they're not offered without context. They're not offered independent of the context that we live in. And so what is needed is to understand the value of them and the way in which they can help us us become really clear about our motivations and our intentions and be clear about the impact when we are engaging in actions that cause harm. And so when we understand the precepts in that way, then it allows us to move from not only restraining from what we don't want to do, but then it helps us shift into engaging with what we do want to do. And when we move into what we do want to do, a positive aspiration helps us stay focused and engaged in how we want to be and live and speak in the world. And when we're only focused on what we don't want to do, sometimes what that can result in is that we're pulled back. Rather than stepping forward, we're just pulled back. So that when we understand integrity from both sides, what we want to be careful about, the places where the red flags start to start waving, and then how to turn it around into what are the positive qualities that we want to cultivate. That not only are we clear about what we need to be careful and restrained with, but it gives us the ability to start focusing on how we can engage, how we can speak, how we can Uh, do things, or what are the kinds of things that we want to be looking for our heart and our body and our mind to engage with in a way that feels congruent with our values. So the classical five precepts are to refrain from killing and stealing and sexual misconduct, uh, incorrect speech and drugs which cause confusion and 
and are supportive of addiction. And one of the things that I really like is the eight lifetime precepts, which are the refraining from harming, killing, and stealing, and refraining from sensual misconduct. And then it breaks the precepts of around the the precepts into the four different kinds of precepts of uh, what is untrue, what is divisive, what is slanderous, and what is useless. And then the eighth precept is to refrain from wrong kinds of livelihood. Now for me, understanding these precepts is, uh, can be juicy. Mostly, we look at it and it feels dry. You know, dry as a bone, dry as cardboard, dry as a bushfire in the desert. It feels dry. But when we begin to look at it and investigate, inquire, it starts getting curious and interesting. So let's just take the first precept in both of these um, precept models, the classical five and the eight lifetime precepts. And the first precept, to refrain from killing. When we take that precept and look at it from an internal perspective of what that's like, when we not only refrain from killing, but we stop hurting, we stop intentionally causing harm, then all of a sudden this dry bone thing, which seems like, well, it's obvious that we shouldn't be killing people, becomes like an in-your-face contemplation that most of us have the experience with all of the time. How many of us belittle ourselves, trash ourselves? How many of us criticize ourselves? How many of us betray ourselves? How many of us slip in the way in which we think about others? Because we are used to thinking about that ourselves. And so when we take this and we dial it down into something that's not only about not killing but not harming, and we include ourselves in the picture, then oh my goodness, you know? Oh my goodness. If we just spent a day, just a day, one whole day, where the only thing we did that day is not engage in harming at all, ourselves or anyone else, what a huge difference that would make, you know? So we are used to like a, a low-level degree of, of judgment and criticism and condemnation and, uh, and, and uh, betrayal of ourselves that we don't even notice because it is so common and so familiar and so much like the wallpaper that we doesn't even, it doesn't, there's no check, there's no, there's no contrast. It's there all of the time. And that has got to stop. It's like there's no way that we can wholeheartedly and fully engage in a path of awakening when we trash ourselves constantly. That has got to stop. And so one of the ways that we can get the energy and the motivation to stop 
is when we make the commitment to stop harming. So the precepts then are not so much a moralistic thing, but they're our ability to, to, to get the rubber and the road to start speaking to each other. It's where is this stuff showing up in our lives? And so when we have a wholehearted commitment to non-harming, the implications are vast. It means, or it can mean, if we're willing to step up to the plate and take on board the invitation, that the normal kinds of dribble that goes on, we have got to find a different way of relating to it. That it's not okay to believe that stuff as if it's the truth. It's not okay to believe it, to follow it. It's not okay to speak it. There has got to be a time out. That is not helpful. It's useless. It's worse than useless. So if like a large part of what's going on as backdrop is stuff that needs to be questioned, then when we take the precepts to heart, my goodness, before we've done anything, before we've gone anywhere, before we've opened up a book, before we've done any kind of meditation, before we've focused on anything, there's this huge thing, this elephant in the room that shows up. The way in which we repeatedly trash ourselves. And it's not all right. When we stop trashing ourselves, then we have some capacity to then stop trashing others. in the way that we express ourselves, in the way that we relate, in the way our body language, in the way that we hold ourselves, in the way that we engage. But until we stop doing that ourselves, it is absolutely inevitable that it's going to spill out and leak out all over the map. So integrity then creates the foundation that gives us the capacity to do our own homework, and so then our, the next immediate result is that the people around us benefit. When we do our own work, then the people around us benefit. So the second precept is to refrain from stealing. Now for myself, I like to dial this down as an internal reflection where it's not only about ripping stuff off, but about this endless if-only list you know, if only I was smarter, if only I was brighter, and if only I didn't have so much trauma, if only I could be calm and wise and skillful and generous and energetic all times under all circumstances for all people, then I'd be able to meditate successfully. You know? So we are evacuated. Me, mom, and her little dog, who snores to lift the roof off. And we're in one room. In fact, mom and I are sleeping in one bed for a week. <laughs> so the question is, is, is that a problem? 
If that's a problem, then there's an if-only list. That if only if it was different, then somehow I would feel better. So we have if-only lists that show up all the time. And if only list takes our mind away from directing our attention to what's going on in the present moment. Because we're focused on what isn't here, what we want here, because if only it was here, then we'd be able to meditate. So we're not with what is, we're with what we want. And the Buddha never woke up to what wasn't here. It's not possible to wake up to what's not here. It's only possible to wake up to what's here. So when we take the precept of not stealing and use it as an internal reflection, how many of us spend our days thinking, if only? If only I was better, if only he was better, if only she was better, if only they were better, if only the weather was better, if only, if only, if only. And our attention moves away from the immediacy of what's going on in the present moment, and we get totally lost in a, in a, in a papancha festival, in a proliferation festival, imagining and fantasizing what is not here. Well, how useful is that? I mean, it can be useful if it anchors back around into action to make things that are useful happen. So stealing is not only about stuff, though it's really helpful to have a very clear boundary around that. Now the whole world of sexuality and sensuality is a rich, rich topic. And what an amazing thing to come into a healthy relationship with our sexuality, to let it be as it is, feel at ease and comfortable with it, to know how it expresses and when it arises, and to let that be a source of ease and well-being and joy and expression of love and care and kindness between partners. And yet, that's not so easy. It's maybe easy to say, not so easy to do. And yet, that's the invitation. And in addition to understanding that in ourselves around our sexuality, it's around how we use the sense world. Again, not because of need, but because of want. And so when we look at the right relationship of sensuality, when we begin to start peeling away the letters, layers of what we are doing, and whether it's actually a compassionate and wise response to the situation, or whether it's a strategy to cover up something else. So look what happens with food. How many of us eat just when we're hungry, eat only enough to fill us up? How many of us engage with media in a way that's useful? How many of us relate to clothing in a way that uh, supports our bodies getting covered and is modest and is just socially acceptable? How many relate to the world of sense contact in a way where we understand what we are doing 
and we feel congruent with our values around it. So again, when we look at the precepts and we start peeling away these layers, it can be juicy. You know, so one of the things that I notice is a difference between being a monastic and being a layperson is shopping. You know, so for 26 years, I did not have any funds, any money that I had direct access to that I can just go shopping. So today I felt like a grown-up because I went down the street and I got myself some kefir. So that was like, you know... (laughs) But getting the kefir, there's 15 kinds of kefir, so what one do you want to get? And so there's choice around what it is that we buy. And the choices that we make have a lot to do with how our values are lined up around harmless and around restraint and what other kinds of things, which is a whole other conversation about how can we engage in the practice of harmlessness when we are shopping. What does that look like? And how much is enough? And how do we get pulled out by the stores that are designed to activate craving and get you all stirred up so that you buy things that you don't need? So this whole movement of integrity then begins to start showing up in all of these different parts of our life. And then the fourth precept around speech. Well, anyone who is in relationship, anyone who's in community, anyone who is on social media understands or can see, skillful speech has one impact in terms of bringing people together and having people feel safe and creating an environment where people can speak, where people feel confident. And unskillful speech has the opposite. It can be divisive, it can be incredibly cruel, people can completely be shamed and lose hope. So how we speak can have a tremendous impact. And so it's helpful to begin to get a sense of the different ways that we use speech and to get a sense of, you know, the places where to be careful about. And so it's fascinating how easy it can be when there's conflict for people to gather around the way they disagree about what somebody else is doing. And how satisfying it can be to just sink your teeth into the two of you or the three of you or the four of you agree that this other person is doing it wrong. And yet, when we do that, what is the result? What's left in the heart after doing that? And when we don't do that, You know, what happens when we are able to reflect on the positive qualities that people bring forward? 
So this is not a way of turning us all into spiritual goody-goodies where we're not actually connected to what's real. But to understand that, you know, when we need to vent, that that's a very particular kind of a need and needs a particular kind of environment to support it so that the venting doesn't leak all over the place and poison the atmosphere. So, the fires in Santa Rosa, they went through and burned all kinds of stuff. The ash is totally toxic. You know, it causes all kinds of problems. It's not easy to digest it. And I heard one friend say that in conversations that they're going to get one of those teams in with the suits and the masks and everything in the places where the neighborhoods have burned down to scoop up the ash and to take Who knows where they're going to take it? But so that the ash doesn't just spread all over the city and get everywhere. So when we're dealing with negativity in terms of focusing on the negative qualities of people, we need to understand that it needs care. And sometimes it's really important just to vent, you know? And I've gone to friends and I say, I need to vent. I want you to listen and don't believe a single word I'm going to say and absolutely don't repeat this anywhere. And I just let rip, you know? Because sometimes I just need to get it off my chest. But when it's not clear that this is what I'm doing, I've had people take my confidences and share them with others and it's devastating what happens. It's just totally devastating. I contract and don't want to speak. Then there's all kinds of mess that needs to be cleared up and sometimes it doesn't clear up. And the poison starts leaking and growing and shifting and sorting. It's a mess. So that the point of this is then to begin to start focusing on, okay, so what do we need to be careful about not doing? And become like signals of when it starts getting close to that, then just have some kind of a feedback mechanism. We're getting close to that. How can we pause and step back? So, speaking untruths. And, you know, even in the... It's interesting to me that in the, the Buddha's teachings, the, the, the instruction is not even to make jokes where they're untrue. No, I think it's actually good to laugh and to make jokes, and we need to be careful about being really strict about in how we take these things on board. But I, can, I know that when there's somebody that does not even make a, a lie in jest, that that person is somebody that I can totally trust. When they say something, I know absolutely it's something that I can rely on. And so there's a level of safety that comes with that that's different than when, than when truth is on this uh, wide spectrum that's very contextual. So the opposite of these things. And then there's the drinking. And now again, you know, the Buddha spoke about drugs and drinking, alcohol and narcotic drugs. 
And I have many, many, many friends that I have such deep respect for who have been in recovery for years. And the depth of their wisdom and their success professionally has been uh, supported by the depth of suffering that they have known as addicts and has been supported by the tenacity and the courage that they have maintained in staying clean and sober. And so hats off for people who are in that process and on that journey. And a community that supports people staying clean and sober in any way that they know how. There's a community that has the ground to do the deep work. Because when there isn't that level of uh, capacity, then there's no uh, ability to do this work. So when I was at the monastery and I was teaching children and we were talking about the precepts, I brought in a styrofoam cup and some gasoline. And I said, the five precepts is like this styrofoam cup. And when you drink too much or if you take too much drugs, it's like the gasoline. And I poured the gasoline in the cup. And you know what happens? The gasoline evaporates. It just melts. So the container of precepts dissolves. It dissolves when we have too many substances in our system that cloud and confuse it. So in our contemporary world, we have a lot more than alcohol and drugs that we need to watch out for. And gratefully, we have support systems that help us know and name and look out for what they are. And one of the, you know, there's many, many different ways that people can be addicted. You know, social media is a big one right now. We are completely addicted to our little widgets. We can't be away from them for more than a few hours. We get agitated, you know. We can't have continuous conversations with our family and friends because we're constantly looking at our widgets. I had a sobering realization about a year and a half ago that I was totally addicted to carbohydrates. I had no idea because it was just something that was flying under the radar. And so when I started a diet that eliminated carbohydrates from my system and I started like craving and craving and craving and fantasizing, crunching on things and eating things and this kind of thing and that kind of thing, I thought, my goodness, I didn't, I ever identify as being an addict. And there it was, right in my face. So each of us, you know, we have our own ways where this is showing up. And each of us, you know, it's important to to know that our addictions are part of the ways that we are trying to navigate what's going on for us in the world. And rather than relate to that with shame, to turn towards it and begin to mine the wisdom that is there and begin to turn towards strategies that are more congruent with our intention not to harm. So when we have a commitment not to harm, as our absolute, unshakable, non-negotiable, no matter what, 
then in many of these areas it gives us some leverage and some ballast and some support to work it so that we can begin to do the inquiry of what's underneath that. What is driving underneath that? And what kind of choices can I start making so that my system begins to unwind and relax and I begin to feel the wellness and the wholeness that I long for, that the addiction was supposed to give me, but by the fact that it's addiction can never give you. And so there's no need for shame. There's just an opportunity for courage to step towards the very things that are so painful, so difficult, and start turning them around one step at a time. So when we look at this list, you know, and we work at from the internal level, you know, and for me, the addictions not only was about substances and behavior, but for me, for a very, very long time, I was a bliss addict, a bliss junkie. Ordinary life to me was utterly intolerable. I hated it. So I would do anything I could to, to squeeze it so that it could be blissful, pleasant, nice, so that it wasn't ordinary. So sometimes these things show up in very interesting ways. And yet when we begin to start looking at it, you know, there's a whole territory that emerges for us about what our lives are actually like and how we can engage with them in a way where there is some excitement and interest and inquiry towards what we want to be like. So when we shift this around from the don't wants to the wants, when we take non-harming and we turn it around, what are the qualities that, that comes forward? You know, for me, the, the turnaround on non-harming is compassion, is kindness, is being present, is showing up. And so when I bring that to myself, you know, to show up when I'm feeling anxious or show up when my nervous system is a little bit fried from just having gone through this crisis, you know, when I came in here, I told Kathy, you're going to have to relate to me a little bit like I've got Alzheimer's because I can't remember anything. I can't remember timing and sequencing right now, you know? And so, is it possible when our systems are stressed like that, that we can bring kindness? And rather than say, I shouldn't be like that, say, this is what it's like, and this is what will be helpful. And just let it unravel and unwind 
in its own time. That seems kind. And yet, we don't do that. Why not? Because we have an idea about how we're supposed to be. And we superimpose the idea of how we're supposed to be on top of a reality that might not fit. You know? So you just come out of this whole big thing. It's going to take a little while for the system to unwind. And that comes with the package. So my mom, bless her, she's 87 years old. We just evacuated. You know, there's this whole big, huge thing that's going on. She said, I'm so dumb. I forgot my lipstick. I said, Mom, it was 3.30 in the morning when they told you to leave. How do you expect yourself to remember your lipstick? (laughs) I said, we can go get you some more lipstick, Mom. Let's go get some more lipstick. But the first thing is is that we judge. I'm dumb. I'm stupid. I didn't do it right. I should have done it better. So bringing forth a heart of kindness to ourselves, because we're not perfect. I mean, maybe you're perfect. (laughs) I'm not perfect. And I've completely given up hope of ever being perfect. So for me, the kindness is to meet the imperfection, not in a way where I'm condoning negligence, but in a way where I can just show up and be with what is. When we do the turnaround on non-stealing, what is it? It's being generous. It's about showing up and giving what one can. And on that level, I really feel proud of my community. I mean, what happened was amazing. The devastation is unfathomable. I can't wrap my mind around it. And I haven't spoken to anybody who can. But mostly what I heard were these incredible stories of people showing up. Restaurants opening up the doors, inviting the community in without charging anybody anything so that people could sit around a table and talk about next steps. Individuals going to stores and buying up respirator masks and just putting them on next door websites and putting them out on their front steps and letting people know that they were there free. People making an effort to go into other people's houses and taking care of cats and animals. People who are normally private and very protective, opening up the doors, helping people navigate incredible complex logistics about who, what, where, when, and how everyone was going to move from here to there. You know? Teenage kids that were dealing with clinical depression showing up at the shelters to help You know, threshold choir going into places and singing just because it made them feel better to be able to do something. Pop-up herbal clinics getting healers of uh, all kinds of different modalities to show up and share their tools, their wares, their skills with everybody without anybody charging anybody anything. You know, 
Santa Rosa is a hotbed of undocumented workers, the sheriff making reports every single press conference that nobody will be questioned about their immigration status at any of the shelters. Showing up, doing what you can. is the positive movement that we can align with, which is a very different experience and expression than just holding back from not doing something wrong or bad. The whole expression of sensuality, of, of engaging with our sexuality and engaging with the world, not out of fear and not out of craving, but out of creativity, out of beauty, out of kindness, out of generosity, out of tenderness, out of love. What does that look like? It's the go-to rather than the restraining from. And speech, speech that is truthful and kind. You know, how often do we look the ones that we love in the eye and let them know, really, our care, our tenderness, our affection, that they matter, you know? There were so many close calls that happened about people not sure if their loved ones were safe. And it's just like all of a sudden, it's like that is the reality that we live with all the time every day, whether you're in California or in New York. None of us know from one minute to the next what's going to happen. And yet we live with the assumption as if there is going to be a future. And we don't take the opportunity to clear the decks, to make amends, to ask for forgiveness, to extend forgiveness, to tell the people that we care that we care. It's not the restraining from saying what's bad. It's the engaging in what is wholesome, of showing up, of living a life of wholeness, of fullness, of aliveness, and not under the assumption that we are going to be around for the next 25 years, that we can do it all then, when it's convenient. So it radically shifts our way of orienting when we live as if we do not know if this is our last day. It helps us do our own inventory. It helps us clear the decks. It helps us orient to what is really important right now. Who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to ask forgiveness from? There may not be a tomorrow.
How can we represent when we see somebody trashing somebody else? How can we be present when we hear slander or racism or homophobia? Or we hear someone being trashed because their religious values are different than ours? Or what is politically correct for the geographical region we're in? It's not about not doing or saying the bad thing. It's about showing up and being a warrior for what is right, for what is true, for what is congruent with the values that you live with. So sila, samadhi, and panya, we need to have a commitment to integrity as a basis, as a foundation, in order for the mind to become still. Not to disengage, but in order to engage. Not to disconnect, but to be whole. To be fully alive. to be spiritual warriors in our own lives, in our families, and in our communities. It's not about being moralistic and puritanical. It's around doing our work. We know the edges. We know the gray zones. We know the places where the red flags show up. And we know our intention. So uh, a couple of years ago, I had a women's facilitator group, which was a, 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 it was, I just loved it. It was a group of women who were committed to uh, a deep dive of Dharma study, leadership training, character development, and community building. And we were talking about integrity, and I spoke about, um, as a monastic, it wouldn't be possible for me to advise for somebody to have an abortion, uh, no matter what the circumstances were. And somebody came up with this example that was a true story of like an 11-year-old girl that was raped by her father, got pregnant, and the mother was trying to figure out what to do. Horrific. I mean, a horrific, horrific story. So I went back into, yeah, even though I still wouldn't be able to give her advice to encourage her to have an abortion, and the women went, you know. It was so activating that I couldn't support the mother to encourage or to help her to make that decision. So I wrote to two monks that are advisors and dear friends of mine, Ajahn Pasano and Bhikkhu Bodhi, and both of them wrote back to me with the encouragement to support the mother, making it very clear that she knew 
what the choices were and to make the choice that was in her daughter's best interests, that helped her daughter be safe and well. And to do it in a way where I was supporting her to make the right choice without telling her what the right choice was. So it wasn't an abdication of responsibility to hide behind a facade of purity to stay disengaged, but to understand the line as a monastic and what that meant. And one of those monks said that he felt ashamed in those circumstances, that that was the line that he would have to draw because he knew in that circumstance there really was only one choice that was the wise, safe, and harmless choice for the daughter. So when we have precepts where there are significant consequences for breaking them, which there would be as a monastic, it doesn't mean that we use that as a way to negate our responsibility to be present and responsive and with what is arising. Even in that kind of circumstance where had I given direct advice, it would have meant a very grave consequence for me. We do not pull back from our capacity to serve even in those circumstances. So the training as spiritual aspirants is to become clear, integrous, so that we can be present with each other, witness each other, support each other, to make wise and compassionate choices for yourselves and for your family. Integrity helps us do that. Allowing ourselves to come into stillness, we're coming into congruence. Being able to feel and know and listen to our bodies. It's not a disembodied experience. Samadhi is not about disconnection. It's about coherence and congruence. When we are coherent and congruent, that is the ground from which we are able to meet each other. That's the place where wisdom follows and flows. That's the place where the heart opens. That is what we are able to touch or when we are able to touch that, then it helps us navigate these things that are unfathomable. And so we have this juxtaposition of stillness and wrapping our minds around things that are unfathomable. And yet, what does stillness, what does congruence, what does coherence mean when we're in the midst of these changes, of these events that are unfathomable. It's not about disappearing for a 10-day retreat. 
It's about meeting what is in the moment as best as we can with the skills that we have and navigating from there. So, maybe I've spoken enough. Let me pause here, but I wanted to give this as an introduction for what this weekend is about. It's not going to be abstract. We're going to move in and out of applications of body work, of deep work ourselves, and of engaging with each other, meeting each other, seeing and witnessing each other to bring the rubber meeting the road so that we can leave here feeling more resourced in our lives, with our families, in our communities, with the changes so many of us are navigating now, with the kinds of challenges that are all around us. Let me hear, let me change context, invite questions or comments. Maybe you can get up and stand up for a minute and stretch. You've been seated for a while now. Your limbs are probably aching. Are there any questions or comments? Comments are welcome. You don't have to have a question. Yes, please. Um, I, I didn't understand about stealing and, and not being with what is or fantasizing. What is that? What's okay, so this is my own interpretation of how I work with it. This is not the Buddha's precepts of not stealing. So the not stealing is not taking things that are not given. Yeah? But for me, in my own practice, the way I bring it alive and juice is when I look at the way in which I am imagining things different than the way that they are. So rather than just material things, the way my mind moves towards uh, the wanting something to be different than the way it is in the present moment. Okay? So for me, the external precepts are not killing, not stealing, refraining from sexual misconduct, and engaging in wrong speech. And the internal way that I deal with that is by looking at non-harming, the what-if list, the whole movement of energy, the movement of energy and craving, and the internal reflection on speech is what I'm doing with my thoughts. So this is my own personal share of the way I work with precepts. Does that help you? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And then you had a question in the back? Yeah, okay. I was particularly arrested by your example of dealing with things that are arising in our world today around us. And I may have misinterpreted what you were saying, but I thought you were saying it's important that we speak up, stand up, engage with those things we perceive as being harmful. So, 
speak out about them, speak in defense of those who are being harmed. The difficulty I'm having with this in my own life currently is there's such a massive amount of stuff. And I heard an expression recently about um, compassion fatigue. Um, for me, it manifests kind of more dysfunctionally than that and more aggressively than that. Uh, I recently found myself um, uncontrollably engaging with someone who is expressing such vile, hateful, hurtful things to someone I didn't even know, but it just it happened in an instant. And I flew to the defense of that person who was being degraded, but in way, way too energetic a manner. It felt to me in the moment, it was something that needed to be done, but I had absolutely no moderation in my response. I didn't, in fact, it was kind of a dangerous situation, a very aggressive, violent situation, and I just threw myself into the fray. There did not seem to be a moment for me to take ahimsa into consideration towards the perpetrator. I don't know how to navigate this. Have you any comments? So, beautiful question. Thank you so much. And yes, in our world right now, there is so much happening on so many different levels. It's overwhelming. You know, it's like, it isn't happening in one area, it's happening in about 40 areas. And there's no way that any, any one of us can be alert and attentive and responsive to all of it that's going on. We, it's, it's, it's beyond our capacity. So I think part of it is, is one to recognize that what we're navigating is overwhelming, that we are not able to respond to everything that is arising. But not being able to respond to everything is different than a, than a, than a basic stance of non-engagement. So there's a spectrum, and in some um, ways in which the teachings, the Buddhist teachings come across, it, it can very easily be understood that the right response is to just be clear and still in yourself and not to engage in any way at all. And so I'm speaking as, a, as an invitation to look at that in a very different way. From the other perspective, when we're feeling completely exhausted because we're in, we're, our, our attention is scattered. So let me just dial back to my own experience with this and then come back and loop around and see if I can answer your question a little bit more directly. You know, my system, it was like I was trying to figure out what I could do, 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 what I could do. And it was like this thing is too big and really what I could do was to take care of my mom, to help my dog, her, her dog, and to, to write a few emails to a few people 
in between the times of taking care and walking the dog. That's what I could do. That was as much as I could do. But my nervous system was firing as if that was not enough, that I needed to be doing more. So it was like my whole system was revving, trying to do something to fix it. And what I had to realize, and I only was able to realize when I was speaking with a dear friend who's a colleague of mine, who said, honey, it's too big. It's too big to fix it. Really, the thing to do is to know that right now it's too big to fix it. That's the thing to do. And so then my nervous system started to relax and my capacity to make choices that were a little bit more appropriate helped me. When I am too frazzled or afraid or stretched thin, my discernment is also frazzled and frayed and stretched thin. So there needs to be some ground of well-being in ourselves before we can help another person. You've got to be on solid ground or a really good lifeguard before you can help somebody that's drowning. In a moment like that, we need to be, it's curious, because oftentimes what happens is, is that when we hear somebody else's uh, violence, it activates our own, and we're not actually tracking it. So rather than becoming an emissary of peace, we're just um, bouncing the violence from one back to the other, and in, in, in a disguise of trying to protect but it's just another power dominance move. Escalation. It's an escalation, yeah. And you're right, in a violent situation, an escalation is actually dangerous, right? It can actually get way out of hand really quickly. So to be a spiritual warrior means that we're not frightened of the trenches, but we're also not frightened to meet our own arising and so when we find that violence is arising in ourself, then we need a pause. <coughs> we need a pause. We need a moment of compassion. We need a moment of discernment. We need a moment of reflecting on our integrity and what our commitments are. Because when we jump into the fray and just ricochet something that's harmful back, it doesn't stop it. It doesn't diffuse it. Compassion for whom in that instance should we focus on? When you're feeling violence in yourself, then you need to focus on the compassion for yourself. First, until you have any some ground in yourself, you don't have any capacity to be protecting another person. You are deflecting another person. You're not protecting another person. Yeah? So it's different. So there's a classical saying that hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred never ceases by hatred. Only by non-hatred alone does it cease. This is the eternal law. It is natural when we see something that is extremely disturbing 
to feel what also needs to come is the check the balance and that comes with practice and so in a situation like that where you jump in you spoke beautifully about what was happening for you and to recognize the impact on yourself and on that situation and the fact that you were courting danger by doing that. So that's an opportunity, an invitation to say, hmm, maybe there might be a way of doing it differently next time. What could the choices, where can I focus my attention? What choices can I make so that I might be able to do that differently? What would it look like? And then in a situation like that, particularly when you're dealing with something that's so activating, what can be helpful is to have some friends role play where their job is to try and incite you. You know, that's their job, is to try to get you totally riled up and then to see how you respond. If you can hold something other than hatred as the ground from which you engage not to deflect, but to protect. So you can role play in a situation where it's okay for it to escalate, and it's okay for you to lose it, and it's okay for you to blow it, you know, because it's not that it's not so uh, risky. And so that's a way a community can support each other in in creating opportunities where people can role play being an ally in. In, in incredibly challenging circumstances. Well, you get to represent in the midst of the heat and watch and see what gets activated. Because with this kind of stuff, it, the instinctual part of the brain is so fast, it's much, much faster than the, than, the, than the thinking part of the brain. When that gets going, you need to have something other than, you need to have some very strong something that's going to help you navigate that. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Yeah. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to switch gears and do a <clears throat> another loving-kindness meditation, another meditation briefly, loving-kindness, for us to close the evening and as a way of really uh, anchoring the reality that when integrity and samadhi and wisdom come together, the result is kindness. So I just want to say that this path of aliveness and wholeness and being a spiritual warrior for me is really um, something that I feel very passionate about. And I also recognize that the classical training that I receive, as incredibly brilliant as it was, 
It's taken a lot of parallel practices to bring forward uh, and integrate this into the whole of my life. And I get it that people are interested in doing that. And I get it that it's not an easy thing to figure out on your own. So I just want to mention that one of the things that I'm offering is mentoring to support this path of wholeness and aliveness in all of your life. And so there's flyers that are outside, if that is of interest, to see how to bring the spiritual path into all of these different areas. And I just am so grateful to be here tonight. You know, it's been quite a something that I've come out of. And to sit together with all of you and to have your presence and your stillness and your witnessing, your interest, it's really powerful. So thank you. And I want to encourage you, if you are able, to come for this weekend. I think we'll have a good time. There's one more thing. Um, there's a piece of paper to sign up if you'd like to be on the Awakening Truth mailing list and to know more about the things that are happening and get uh, updates. There's uh, some online activities that I do. So even though I'm based in Santa Rosa, there are online classes and courses and webinars that may be of relevance as well as uh, you'll know if I'm traveling on the East Coast. And it's not fancy, it's just a piece of paper because I didn't have it together to print out the right paper. But hopefully it'll be okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.